0: have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open them, please, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We continue our sermon series through the epistles of the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica. We call our sermon series, Looking for Jesus, a church looking for Jesus. Do you know the church at Thessalonica was looking for the coming of Jesus in its day? How much more today should we be a church looking for the coming of Jesus? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll read together verse 13 through 15. The Apostle Paul writing to the believers of his day. The Apostle Paul writing to the believers of today. He says, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you. Brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and the belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. Stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or by epistle. Henry Dempsey was a pilot. He was piloting an aircraft that was going from Maine to Massachusetts that had 15 passengers on board. As the plane was in flight, he heard some noise coming from the back of the plane some racket, if you will. He turned the plane over to the co-pilot, and he said, let me go back there and see what this noise or racket is all about. While in the back of the airplane, checking things, he pushed upon the emergency door that was in the rear, and it opened up. And Henry Dempsey was sucked out of the airplane sucked out of the airplane. Well, ladies and gentlemen, in his frantic departure, one of his hands managed to catch a cable, and he held on to that cable for dear life. The co-pilot, understanding what was going on, immediately made arrangements to land the airplane, but it took about 15 minutes before they could land. Everybody expected that Henry Dempsey was going to be lost and dead. But to their surprise, he was found and he was alive, still holding onto that cable. His hand was holding that cable so tight, ladies and gentlemen, that they had to remove his hand. To get in my way. Now I tell you that story for a reason. Our world that we live in. Is falling apart. It's falling down. It's falling away. It's being sucked. Toward the abyss. Of darkness and death. And destruction and damnation. And everyone without Jesus is being sucked out the door. But you and I in Christ, we have a cable we can hold on to. And if we'll hold that cable strong, if we'll hold that cable tight, if we'll hold that cable with endurance and with stamina, that cable will not only save our life, it well may save our soul. As the coming of Jesus draws near, everything that is not nailed down is being sucked away. And even what is nailed down, the devil is trying to pry up that it will be sucked away too. Nations are being sucked away. Churches are being sucked away. Families are being sucked away. Individuals are being sucked away. And what Paul is saying to the church of that day and to us, find a cable and hold on. Find a cable and hold on. Some cables he mentions to us is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, first of all, When you feel the sucking beginning, when you see the vacuum pulling, hold on to the cable of salvation. Verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks always to God for you. Brethren, you are beloved of the Lord. Do you see that, brethren? That's you and me. We are beloved. We are loved of God. We are beloved of the Lord. because God hath from the beginning chosen us, or chosen you, to salvation. It's interesting, Paul talks about love, and he talks about salvation, and he talks about them in the same sentence, or the same breath, if you will. Paul wants you and I to know... And these days when things are being blown away, He wants us to know that God loves us. Look up here at me on this side. Do you know God loves you? Do you know that 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 God loves you? you God you? God loves you more than anyone in this world ever will. He loves you unconditionally. And because he loves you and I, unconditionally, he chose to save us by his grace. Now let's think about that love that Paul mentions. He calls the the church at Thessalonica and those Christians there. He says, you're beloved of God. Do you know you saints at Miles Road? We are beloved of God. There is nothing that we can do, ears on. There is nothing we can do to make God love us more. Say amen. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you less. Say amen. That's important to remember because many of us live with the idea that if we do good, God loves us more. If we do bad, God loves us less. And we're always trying to perform for God. Listen to me. You can perform for God all you want, but he loves you right now just as much as he ever will. He loves you at the zenith. He loves you at the height. He loves you at the, the, the pinnacle. There is nothing more we can do to make God love us more or less. He loves us to the utmost right now. And because he loves us that much, he chose to save us. We don't deserve to be saved. We can't save ourselves. And the truth of the matter is, we don't even want to be saved. But God in His love intruded into our world. And He came with an offer of salvation. He came. He called us by name. He convicted us of our sins. He compelled us to give our lives to Him by faith and in repentance. When I would not come to where Jesus was, He didn't do anything. (laughs) Is that what it says? When I would not come to where Jesus was, He came to me. He came to you. Now you might be asking this question, and it's a good one. Pastor, I'm a little bit confused. I'm as confused as a ball in a, field of weeds pastor i'm confused is my salvation then because god chose to save me in his sovereignty or is my salvation because i chose to receive him by my own free will okay that's that's the question you might have pastor Am I saved because God in His sovereignty chose to save me? I really had nothing to do with it. Or am I saved because in my own free will, I received His salvation and made it my own? Pastor, which is it? The sovereignty of God or the free will of man? Both. Yes and yes. <laughs> Yes and yes. Do you know salvation is like a coin? A coin has two sides, don't it? You gotta have two sides to have a coin. And on one side of the coin of salvation, there's the sovereignty of God. God chooses, God calls, God comes, God convicts, God compels, God converts, God changes. And there's an inscription on that side of the coin of God's sovereignty that says, chosen by God before the foundations of the world. Now, if you flip the coin over, it's interesting. Because the sovereignty of God is on one side, but the free will of man is on the other side. And there's an inscription on that side of the coin that says, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you understand that you're saved by God's sovereignty? And you're saved by your free will choice. You see, that's keeping everything in the middle. One of the problems we have in today's church is that today's church always likes to stay in the ditches on the left and the right. Can you imagine walking down the road? God wants us to walk down the center of the road. Well, many Christians and many churches today and many denominations today, they don't walk down the center of the road. They get into the ditches that are on the left and right. God is not to the left. God is not to the right. God is dead centered in the middle. If you want to know where the will of God is, it's in the middle. When you put too much emphasis in salvation on the sovereignty of God what you have is hyper-Calvinism and that will put you in a ditch on the left-hand side of the road. When you put too much emphasis on the free will of man that's called hyper-Arminianism and that will put you on the ditch on the right-hand side of the road. Both of them are wrong. It is the word of God's teaching, that yes, God is sovereign, he does choose, he does come, he does call, he does convict, he does compel, he does convert, he does change. That's all true. But we have to agree to it. There has to be a yes from us or it will not proceed. Say, Pastor, I don't understand it. Neither do I totally. When you and I get to heaven, we'll ask him and he'll tell it to us. So there's the cable of salvation. You better hang on to it. God loves me and God chose to save me and God gave me the all to say yes to him. But then there's another cable you better hang on to. You don't want to get ripped out. You don't want to disappear. It's the cable of sanctification. Look at verse 13. Now follow in your Bibles. Brethren, you are beloved of the Lord because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Through sanctification of or by the Spirit and the belief of the truth. Now, when we allow the Lord Jesus Christ to save us by His grace through our faith and repentance of sin in Him, the Spirit of God, the third member of the Holy Trinity, then gets involved, and He comes into our life. You've heard me say many times, the Spirit of God does not live in this church. This is just a building. The Spirit of God lives in a temple, and that temple is our body. Our body becomes a church. Our body becomes a synagogue. Our body becomes the Holy of Holies. Our body becomes the tabernacle by which God will live in. So when you go anywhere, you're carrying him with you because he lives inside of you. And it's the Spirit of God that comes into our life the moment that we're saved that begins this word called sanctification. Sanctification is a process by which you and I are made to be like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. Baptist folks are scared of the word. We're terrified of the word. We think it comes from the Pentecostals. Oh, It's a biblical word. It simply means that the Spirit of God that came into your life the moment you said yes to Jesus is now doing a conforming, a transforming work in you, making you just like the Jesus who saved you. May I say to you, it is a powerful work to make a hell-bound sinner into a heaven-bound saint. It's a persistent work because it's continually ongoing. It doesn't just start on Sunday and stop on Monday. It is a constant, continual, uh, persistent, perpetual work that's going on each and every day of each and every week of each and every month of each and every year that we're alive. It's a progressive work. Because the more the Holy Spirit works in us, the more we become like Jesus. We ought to be more like Jesus today than we were yesterday. We ought to be more like Jesus tomorrow than we are today. It's a progressive work it's steadily making us more and more like Him. It's a permanent work. Because once we get it, we will keep it, and we'll be finished when we get to heaven. And it's a promised work. It's going to happen. You can't stop it. The devil can't stop it. The world can't stop it. The Holy Spirit of God is going to make those who are sons and daughters of God into the perfect picture of Jesus. You understand that? Now, if you're saved, genuinely saved, you will be changed. If you're saved and you're not changed, you're not saved. Remember, that change is powerful, it's persistent, it's progressive, it's permanent, and it's promised. What we've done in recent times in the Christian churches is we have downplayed the sanctification process. We've suggested that it's possible to be saved and yet still live a worldly, carnal, ungodly, filthy, wicked life. That's what we suggest to people. Either we say it overtly or subtly, but that's what we say. We call them backsliders, and that way we can justify their going to heaven, and we don't have to worry with them. And most of us do that with our family. Rather than go talk to Aunt So-and-So about her soul, or Cousin Billy about his soul, we just say, well, he, he, he asked Jesus into his life 40 years ago, and even though he hasn't lived a, a Christian life for 39 years of it, we, he's saved, he's just backslid." No, he's lost because folks were not saved by just saying a prayer. Baptist folks have heard that all their life. Just say the sinner's prayer and you're saved. You can say the sinner's prayer 50,000 times and die and go to hell. It's not the sinner's prayer. Are you listening to me? It's not the sinner's prayer. There's nothing magical. There's nothing mystical. There's nothing supernatural about that prayer. All that prayer is, if you say it, is an expression of what's in your mind and what's in your heart toward Jesus. If it's real, then the prayer is real, and if it's not, the prayer is not. The greatest evidence that you are a born-again child of God and the Spirit of God is living in you and you're going to one day stand in heaven is you're being changed. Say, but Pastor, I'm an alcoholic Christian. There ain't no such thing. I'm a dope selling Christian. There ain't no such thing. I'm a dope taking Christian. There ain't no such thing. I'm a fornicating Christian. There ain't no such thing. I'm a lying Christian. There ain't no such thing. Pastor, I'm a cussing Christian. There ain't no such thing. When the Spirit of God comes into you, ladies and gentlemen, He changes your mind. He changes your eyes. He changes your ears. He changes your mouth. He changes your hands. He changes your feet. He changes your life. He doesn't make you perfect. You'll be perfect in heaven. But the work begins. And he begins to chisel our sins away from us. I'm not saying that there won't be times that we will lapse. There won't won't be times that There will be times when we might stumble and fall. But if you're generally a child of God, He will bring you back, He'll clean you up, and He'll keep you going. I wouldn't give you a plug nickel for a salvation that doesn't change you. And yet we have a church full of people using it generically, not necessarily here, but there might be some of you as well. A church full of people who have a salvation, but it ain't changed in one iota. That's not the way it works. Being confident of this very thing, he that began the work, salvation, will continue the work, sanctification. He will make me like Jesus. Until that day of glorification, when I will be perfected, I will be like the one that I stand with. Paul says, hang on to the cable of salvation. Hang on to the cable of sanctification. And then thirdly, in verse 14, he says, hang on to the cable of sharing his glory. Look at verse 14 now. Whereunto he called you by our gospel, notice the word gospel, to the obtaining of the glory you will obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, verse 15, stand fast and hold the traditions. In other words, hold on tight, stand still and hold on tight those things that you've been taught, whether by word or by our epistle. Now, cables, we don't want to, we're getting blunt, we're getting sucked. Cable of salvation, cable of sanctification. Now the cable of sharing in his glory. Let me give you an equation. The gospel plus grace equals glory. The gospel, the good news that Jesus died for our sins, was buried three days later. He arose again from the grave. He's alive right now. He's now in heaven preparing to come again. The glorious gospel, when it is told, allows the grace of God to do a work that brings about ultimately the glory of God. The gospel plus God's grace equals glory. Now, the listen, pay, pay attention. The grace of God comes through the gospel And God's grace leads to glory. As we have received the gospel, which then allowed us to know God's grace, which one day will allow us to have his glory, if that's what happened to us, should we not tell others? Okay? If you were a hungry person on the street, and somebody tapped you on the shoulder and said, Hey, buddy. Down the road there, there is a buffet, filet mignon, baked potatoes, Caesar salad, red velvet cake, hot coffee. All of that right down the road, you get as much as you want. Look at me. I did. That would be good, wouldn't it? One beggar telling another beggar where to find the buffet. Well, listen, you and I who were beggars, somebody shared with us the gospel. Through that gospel that was shared with us, the grace of God was poured into our lives. And that grace is going to lead us to glory, where one day we will be in a place called heaven, and we will not only be with Jesus, we will be replicas, we'll be just like him, perfected by the Spirit of God. Now, if that happened to us, then should we not share that with somebody else? Find spiritual beggars. Share with them the gospel. That they might receive the grace of God and one day join us in that glorious day. That word glory is an interesting word that's mentioned there. It means to put all of the weight on somebody's back. You know what Paul's saying? The Spirit of God down here can't give us all of Jesus. It would crush us. So he just measures it out to us as much as we can take at any given time. But when we get to heaven, guess what? The full glory is given to us. In other words, all of the weight of who Jesus is is going to be put on us. And we're going to become just like him. We will have the full weight of Jesus in heaven. And we will become fully like him. Wow. So you, we got a cable now. We've got to hold on to our salvation. God loves us and God wanted to save us. And God did save us because we let him save us. And then the cable of sanctification. God's making us like Jesus. This old world is becoming more like the devil, but we're being made like Jesus. And we're holding on to the cable of sharing His glory. Somebody shared the gospel with us. We received the grace of God. One day, we're going to have the full weight of Jesus on us because we'll be walk like Him in heaven. And we've got to tell others. And then he closes it all by talking about prayer. I want you to look at chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 as we close. I believe Paul loved to pray. He's constantly slipping prayer into everything he talks about. And notice what he says in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, finally, brethren, that's you and I, pray for us. The greatest Christian man who ever lived said, would you pray for me? Pray for him for what? That the word of the Lord may have a free course and be glorified even as it is with you. That we may be delivered from unreasonable men and wicked men, from men who have no faith. Paul concludes by saying, Would you pray for us? Pray for us as we proclaim the gospel the gospel that brought us God's grace that one day will bring us God's glory, would you pray for us as we go out and tell that gospel to other people? Would you pray that we might do it faithfully? Would you pray that we might do it passionately? Would you pray that we might be doing it continually and constantly? Would you pray that we might be doing it with simplicity and plainness? Because the hour is late. The sun is coming down on this world as the sun is apparently coming up. And what you're going to do, you better do quickly. He says, pray that this gospel will have a free course. You know what that free course means? It means without any hindrance, without any harassment, without any haltings, that that gospel will get out. And then notice he says, and be glorified, even as it is with you. Paul's saying that when I go out and share this gospel, and I'm asking for your prayers when I do it, may I do it as a gentleman or as a lady. The gospel might be offensive, but may I not be offensive. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a good way to pray for each other here today. That when we go out of this building, we who are recipients of the gospel, somebody talked to us and told us, we are recipients of God's grace, we are one day who will be recipients of the full weight of his glory, that we would take what was so freely given to us and take it to others. Take it to others in our inner circle, take it to others in our outer circle, take it to others that may be in no circle of ours at all, but God brings them across our path. And may we as ladies and gentlemen share with them the faith. And then he says something interesting. He said, pray for us for that because in verse 2 there's going to be a need for protection. Whenever you make a decision to do something for the Lord that's life-changing, that's difference-making, there will be an enemy who will immediately do all he can to detour you, deny you, delay you, to discourage you. And he uses two illustrations in verse 2. He says it will come from unreasonable men or wicked men, neither of which have no faith. The term unreasonable men speaks of men inside the church. saboteurs, terrorists from Satan who have come inside the church and their mission is to block the Great Commission, to do all they can to hinder the work of the Great Commission in the church going out of the church. Do you know there are some people that do not believe in the Great Commission? They see no reason why we should be giving money to missions when we have such a pressing need for carpet here, when we have such a pressing need for light fixtures up there, when we have such a pressing need for ornaments on these little trees with nothing on them. And by the way, they will be decorated later. Do you know Satan has men and women who sit on deacon boards and sit on committees and their whole purpose is to do anything and everything they can to keep the church out of missions. We don't need to send our money to Africa because we've got needs here. Have you ever heard that? I can't believe you're going over there and sharing Jesus with those people. If they get saved, you're telling me they're coming to my church? This is my church. They're not the right color to come to my church. They're not the right class. They're not the right culture. They don't have the checkbook that I have. I'm not wanting them here. See, Satan raises up people to hinder the Great Commission, and he puts them on the inside. They're called unreasonable people, and notice Paul says they have no faith. They're phonies. They're like Judas Iscariot, who criticized the woman for pouring out her rich perfume on Jesus' feet. And he whispered and said, listen, why is she doing that? Give me that money, and I could have given it to the poor. He wouldn't give it to the poor. He'd put it in his own pocket. And then there will be wicked people that will try to detour the gospel. Paul says, we want to do it. It was given to us. We received it. We're going to have it all one day. We've got to tell others about it, that they might receive it, that they might have it, that they might get it all one day. But he said, understand, there's going to be people inside the church, unreasonable people, who will act like they're spiritual and pious, and they'll do everything they can to keep people from going out and sharing their faith here, or giving money here that we can share our faith around the world. They'll do everything they can to torpedo it with a smile on their face and their Bible in their hand. And then he said, there'll be wicked men from the outside who will try to stop it. There'll be politicians. There'll be bureaucrats. There'll be tax collectors. There'll be local officials. And they will try to pass ordinances and regulations. And they will use attorneys to to persecute the church with litigation. They will come against the church with taxation. They will intimidate the church. They will do everything they can to tell the church, you keep it all in here, but you dare take it out there, and we're going to arrest you. And we're going to sue you. And we'll shut you down. You just keep it in here and keep your mouth shut out there. Paul says, pray for us because we're going to face those people and we want to be able to resist them and continue doing what God wants us to do. In closing, you might be thinking to yourself, and I kind of alluded to this last week, Pastor, every single message you preach sounds like the same thing. You're right. You might be thinking, I'm crazy. (laughs) Pastor's getting old, he's senile. You know, when people get old, they just repeat themselves all the time. No, I'm not senile, I'm smart. Because I understand something. We will be no greater as a church than the foundation in which we build ourselves on. And Paul understood that too. That's why in every epistle he writes, the theme is the same. Know you're saved, live a holy life, pray and witness and serve and give to the glory of God. That's what he says. He's like a broken record. He just says it with a different song. But it's the same old music. Make sure that you're saved. Make sure that your life has been changed by the power of God in Christ Jesus. Live a holy life. God is holy. You be holy. Pray as if everything depends on you. Pray with fervency. Pray with passion. Pray, pray, pray. And share your faith. Fulfill the great commission in you. Fulfill the great commission with your brothers and sisters in the corporation called the church. Serve. God saved you to serve. God saved you to give. Do something. Give something. And ladies and gentlemen, I tell you, if we would just do that, day in and day out, season in and season out, good times and bad times, this church can make a difference. But we want gimmicks, pastor, and gadgets. We want fluff and mirrors. You can have them, but they don't last. I was reading about that church in Florida some years ago that said, that they had a visitation from the Holy Spirit. And the way they knew that the visit of the Holy Spirit had come is everybody broke out in crazy laughter. Y'all remember that? There was actually a church in Florida. It was running 15,000 people who came because the minister said, when the Holy Spirit comes, we'll laugh. And they would just break out in laughter and everybody would laugh the whole service. Some would laugh on their backs, spinning like a top. Others would laugh running around like hyenas. Others would laugh jumping pews. Others would laugh falling out. It was nothing but spontaneous, hilarious laughter. Every worship service in every way imaginable. And they said this is a visitation from the Holy Spirit and the man who was leading it was a prophet of God. He made millions of dollars. Personally made millions of dollars. Well, ten years later, you know where that church is? Because another gimmick came along. And the 15,000 got tired of the laughing gimmick, so they moved somewhere else and took up the next gimmick. And then they'll take up the next gimmick. You see, the church is always looking for gimmicks. Our young people are always being told, you've got to have a gimmick to get young people to come. Our older people are told, you've got to have a gimmick to get them to come. Listen, what we need to do is work on the fundamentals and the foundations of our faith. If we do that, we will have the manifested power of God in this church. And we won't need the gimmicks. We won't need the gadgets. We won't need the smoke. We won't need the mirrors. Because when God's in the house, He'll do it. And it won't be a work that'll just last for a few weeks or a few months or a few years. It'll be a work that'll last for eternity. So Paul says the same thing over and over and over. Just block and tackle and you'll win football games. Just do these things and you'll win. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.